Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest this week, uh, who's been on our show already a couple of years ago, manages to combine a career as a comedian with a one as a financial expert. Uh, Dominic Frisbee, uh, you might know because uh, he is uh, well a master in diff many different fields. Uh, hello, Dominic. Good Hi, to, Peter. Good to see you. Um, but, um, he also writes a column for uh, Money Week. And uh, in fact, he was talking on this show when he was on before, mostly about finance. But today he's here because it's a particular uh, project of his, which uh, I think you will find fascinating. Um, first of all, Dominic, I mean, um, we're talking about an audio drama here, aren't we? I mean, I've never actually listened to one, but these are enormously popular, aren't they, on, on, on Spotify and on various different platforms i think so i mean the audio drama goes all the way back to radio 4 and the old radio 4 dramas and yeah. they're still putting them out this is even one step further so it's an uh, a musical audio oh, drama right so this has it ever been produced on stage or yes it had this this has a long history uh this this story in fact it began as as a radio 4 drama in the yeah. 1980s and then it was produced as a stage musical. Yeah. And then during the lockdown, I took the story and turned it into a 10-part serialised podcast. Oh, okay. So it's 10 half-hour episodes. Now, this is by your father? Is that My right? dad wrote it. It's Terrence his story. Frisbee. Terence Frisbee, yeah. yeah. And we can talk about him. Yeah. But the subject of the story is, I think, a really important story in British history and it's an untold story in British history. Uh, we know a bit about it um, and I know the same thing happened to your parents and we'll talk about that in a second but it's how somewhere between three and four million children yeah. were taken from their parents and sent into the unknown. Mm -hmm. Three to four million children. Mm. It was the largest movement of, of people in British history. And Even this, bigger than immigration today. This was the, um, obviously, the evacuees. Uh, what it happened, did it, it started to happen, what, before 1939? Or was it 1940? Uh, well, it, it was in 1940-41. Mm. Uh, sorry, 1939-40. There was one evacuation, and then everyone came back. And then there was the big one, after Dunkirk, just before the Battle of Britain. Yeah. So this is directly your father's experiences? Or this is his it? story. Yes, I see. So what is the name of this? Okay, so the name of it is Kisses on a Postcard. Right. And why don't, why don't we start? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why yeah. it's called Kisses on a Postcard. And I'll, I'll start with a, with a story. And so it's 1940. Uh, the last soldiers have just come from, back from Dunkirk. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. And they know that the Luftwaffe are going to bomb the British cities. Mm. And so the directive comes out from the British government that all children are to be evacuated. And those children <coughs> under the age of five, their mother could go with them. Mm. But over the age of five, they were to be sent from their families. Nobody knew where they were going, how long they would be going for, and who would be taking them in. Did they not know that when they started out on the journey yeah. then? Yeah, I didn't realise that, you yeah. see. Oh. And so you can imagine, <clears throat> yeah. I, I don't know if you have children, but no. I'm sure just like I do, and just 
putting your children on a train mm -hmm. and sending them into the unknown and never knowing if you will see your children again. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And so um, my grandmother decided to turn the whole thing into an adventure. Mm. And my father, Terry, was seven and his brother, Jack, was 11. And she said, I'm going to give you a secret code, like the Secret Service. And the kids were very excited. And she gave them each a postcard. And the postcard had written on it, Dear Mum and Dad, arrived safe and well, love Jack and Terry. And on the postcard, they were to write one kiss if where they ended up was horrible. Right. And then mum would come straight back and get them. They were to put two kisses if it was okay. And they were to put three kisses if it was nice. And that was the secret code. And they were to send that postcard home when right. they got to where they were going. And so she tied, they each had little labels on them with their name and their form and their school and a little uh, pack with a sandwich and a change of clothes, maybe a toothbrush. I don't even know if they had toothbrushes then. And she walked them down to the station, uh, Deptford. Uh, my dad lived in Deptford at the time. I gather your parents lived in Peckham. Peckham. So <coughs> just up the road. Yep. And on the way to the station, you know, everyone from the school, Deptford Creek Primary, <laughs> was uh, walking up to the station. And then you've got this scene on the station where all the mums put their kids on the train. And as I say, she never knew if she was going to mm. see them again. Mm. You can imagine the wrench. And the instruction she gave them was they were to send her this uh, postcard and they were to stick together. Mm. Whatever happened, the two brothers were to stick together. Mm. So they got on this train and they had their little secret code. Don't tell anyone. And the train goes from Deptford and they, they'd redone the lines. They'd sort of rejigged the lines. And so the train went, it followed that line into Waterloo and then it went out again, all the way through southwest London, all the way through Surrey, Wiltshire, Dorset, Somerset, Devon. And it ended up in Liscard in Cornwall. It went all the way along that lovely line, the Dawlish, you know, the Dawlish coast, that beautiful Absolutely. bit of stretch of line. Yep. All the kids go, the sea, the sea. And my dad and his brother, they both loved trains. My granddad worked on the railways. They were part of that generation who loved steam trains. But anyway, in Liscard, they, some buses arrived and their school was split up. And about 40 or 50 of them, uh, my dad and some of his mates, were driven to this tiny village five or six miles from Liscard called Dobwalls, right in the middle of nowhere in sort of East Cornwall. And they were herded into the village hall and they were all made to stand in the village hall where all the locals stood round watching them. And in those days, accents were much stronger. Oh, yes. You know, every you yeah. could tell somebody's, uh, you know, even a village 10 miles up the road mm. in Oxfordshire would have a different accent. And the Cornish accent was very strong. People still spoke the Cornish language. All the smells were different to, you know, you can imagine southeast London to a tiny village in Cornwall. Everything was different. And these strange locals were looking at them. 
And Dad described the next scene as like a cattle market. And the great expression that went across the country then was, I'll take that one there. Right, okay. And they were literally chosen at yeah. random by these, by these villagers. And their, their fate was sealed. And many people in that evacuation had horrible experiences. Some people had happy experiences. My dad called it his second childhood. Really. Had they actually, what's interesting as well, people often don't realise, is that many of the kids would not have actually been out of London even, mm -hmm. maybe. But, what, but do you know if that was the case with your, your yeah, They'd been to Brighton. <laughs> they had right. family in Brighton, okay. they had family in yeah. Kent. So they'd sort of travelled around that thing, but yeah. they'd certainly never been as far as Cornwall. No, this was, you're talking another world, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. And in those days, Cornwall, you know, England was another country to Cornwall. Yes, yes. You know, the Cornish saw the English as foreigners. Yeah. And you can just imagine, for me, the wrench for the parents is, is the... Yes. Is but the also the other way around. I seem to remember my father. You know, my father was young when he was evacuated, but his mother didn't go with him for some reason. Was he um, below the age of five? I think he... No, he would have been over actually yeah. five years old. She didn't go, but he was still scarred by this experience. You know, I don't see how you cannot have been. Yeah, yeah. To be suddenly taken away from your parents, and it happened to every child in a city in the UK, and the the psychological impact of this, I, I don't think anyone's studied what the psychological impact was on that generation. But it lived with my father throughout his whole life. He would always talk about it. Yes. But anyway, the family that took him in was not a Cornish family. It was a Welsh, it was a Welsh woman who took him in. And she was married to a little Welshman who had been a soldier in World War I. And they were known as Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack. And he was, I think, five foot two, little Welsh prop forward. <coughs> and he had been in a regiment in World War I called the Welsh Bantams. Right. And it was at the point, at first, you had to be over a certain height mm. to get into the trenches. And then they picked anyone <laughs> after they'd shot all the big people. And he was in the Battle of the Somme in a famous incident called the Mammoth's Wood Massacre, where the Welsh Bantams had come up against the Prussian Guard, who were all over six foot. So you can imagine these six foot, um, uh, you know, blonde Anglo-Saxon Germans all massacring these tiny Welshmen who were all massacring these Germans. And only 17 people survived this massacre. Oh, really? And he went back to Wales, one of 17 who just survived, and he was the only man who went back to his village. And wow. the, they just said it got too much the way every woman just looked at him. Why did you survive and nobody else? Yes. And so they'd left Wales and they'd come down to Cornwall. And he was now a plate layer on the railways. Very socialist very pro-Ernest Bevin, mm. that kind of mm. socialist, would have voted Brexit, I'm sure. Um, uh, passionately anti-authoritarian, um, uh, atheist, but a big believer in, like he had them every week, they went to church for the singing, mad about singing. Mm. But anyway, this was the family that took them in. They didn't know all of this at this point. So, they're picked out at random, my dad and his brother, um, in, the, uh, in the village hall. And they're walked back to this cottage where they lived. 
and it was a, about two miles from where they were picked up and there was a, a row of cottages by the railway, railway cottages, because he worked on the railway, at Double Boys Station, for those of you who, <laughs> who know their Cornish stations. It's, it's a sort of reasonably well-known station. And they went into the cottage, and this Welsh couple, had their, they had their own son, who was 19, just about to join the... Uh, well, he was already in the army, um, but he was just about to go off and fight by the name of Gwyn, and they went into this cottage. There was no electricity, just gas lights, um, no lavatory, just an outdoor, outdoor privy like mm, they had in mm, those days, mm. uh, a cat asleep by the, by the fire, a canary in a cage, um, a pig in the yard, some chickens, outside the railway, the, so they had the, the main uh, uh, London to Penzance line, and so they could watch steam trains going past. Valleys to explore with streams to dam, a tour to climb. And my dad and his brother thought they had died and gone to heaven. Really? Yeah. They just loved yeah, it. Yeah. And so this first scene, I'm going to play you now. Oh, great. Yep. Is, I say this is an audio drama, <laughs> but we recorded the video of this one scene. Right. And they've just arrived at the, um, at the cottage, and it's the first night, and the two boys are sat up in bed with candlelight, yep. deciding how many kisses to put on their car. Oh, I see. Okay. Thank you. Okay. you so here we go, yeah. and we'll hit play mm -hmm. here. How many kisses? I vote three. What would mum and dad think of it here? Don't know. No electricity. They wouldn't like that. I don't care. There's no bathroom. I don't care. Outside love, all they have. I can't go in an outside love. I don't mind, I don't care. What if it's freezing cold out there? That's what the box for, don't you see? I vote one. I vote three. To share or squashed up in it, I don't care. Kisses on a postcard, we must write something we've got to do tonight. Kisses on a postcard, what will they show? Only mum is going to know. What about Gwyn? Gwyn's not bad, even though you can see he's mad. Auntie Rose, what do you say? She says weird things, but she's okay. Not Uncle Jack, though. He Postcard, what do we do? I still say three. Well, I say two. Kisses on a postcard, three, two, one. Better be quick or it won't get done. If we put less than three, Mum and Dad will think it's rotten here. They'll be worried. Yeah, well, there's the trains, they're good. And the station, right next to us. That's terrific. Hey, wait, I've just remembered. Hens! What about hens? Eggs, stupid. Real eggs. Not that horrible powdery stuff. Eggs for you, eggs for me. Eggs for breakfast, brandy. Poached or baked, scrambled or fried. On board with soldiers on the side. What do you say now? What's your score? All right, three. I say four. You can't! 
Why not? Mum only set up to three. But don't you see? The more kisses we put, the more happy they're going to be. Yeah. It's terrific here, really, isn't it? Like being on holiday, only there's no sea. We don't have to stop at four. Let's do hundreds. Yeah. Kisses on a postcard, one by one. All around the edges, this is fun. Kisses on a postcard, squashed up tight. Telling Mum that we're They covered the card in kisses to reassure their parents, mm -hmm. but also they did love it. Mm -hmm. Is that that's right? Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. And he spent the whole of the war there. Yeah. So and you're talking oh, five years then? I think they went back in 1944. Yeah. When they, uh, it was, yeah, it was four years. Yeah. He'd, he'd got a place at Dartford Grammar. Yeah. Uh, which he would have started in the 11 plus, so yes. he would have started that, I guess, at 11 or 12. And he left when he was seven, so four and a bit years. Did they not, so it sounds to me, I mean, they obviously The loved. kids who hated it went home sooner. They did, yes. But also, um, there seemed to be, there was also some resistance to London kids, wasn't there as well? You know, just like, a dislike of London and, and Londoners. Um, over not the course in your of the production, but I mean generally. Oh, there is in the production. Oh, is there? Very much. Um, the over the course of the the story, like what 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 I described to you there was like the first kind of half hour, and you get the whole of the war, and the whole of their story, I see. and everything that happens to Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack, and you learn Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack's story. But one of the things that Dad used to describe is the huge fights that would go on between the Vaki kids and the village kids, yes. and you know. The, the, the Vaki kids were just smarter, mm. stronger. They even cheated better. Right. They were just, you know, he, he, Dad said we were the grey squirrels and they were the red squirrels. Mm. And um, the local kids, uh, the, the Vakis just thought the locals were stupid and thick and the local kids resented these pushy <coughs> newcomers. And he just, he describes this, he described a snowball fight. One winter, they had a really snowy winter. I think it was the winter of 1942. And he describes this snowball fight in the village that just got totally out of hand. Right. And the whole village would fight. Really? And so, yeah, and the, the locals, I mean, some of the locals hated these newcomers, but others, maybe their kids had left home or they'd never been able to have kids or whatever, just found themselves... 
uh, with new families. Yes. And the whole demographic of the village changed. And that was the case across the whole country. Across the whole country, yes, of course. I suppose it would have affected London the most, obvious, for obvious reasons. Biggest city, but also the one most under attack. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> this is a ten-part, right? So ten, this covers ten and a half hour episode. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, ten part. So, so how can people watch it, or should I say, listen to it? Then, yeah, listen to it. Absolutely right. Um, you just go into your podcast app, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or whatever, and type in "kisses on a postcard," or you can go to kissesonapostcard.com yeah. and. Uh, all the links are there on the mm. website. And if you prefer, I'm also selling CDs on the website. To listen to the podcast is, is completely free, but the CDs you've got to pay for. <laughs> well, quite. Because I had to pay for them. It's nice <laughs> to hear that people are still using CDs, actually. Well, <laughs> people... Uh, are, like, my dad was 88, and he was seven when the evacuation happened. And he died in 2020. There are still some people in their 90s now who this happened to mm. and you know so a lot of people have bought cds to give it to their grandma or to their granddad or whatever oh. and the messages i've had from people yeah. it really i mean this is dad first and foremost was a writer of comedy so there's lots of comedy in this beautiful songs and but it's you know makes you cry makes you laugh like all good stories should in fact your your father you know, wrote a, a, a famous long-running play in the West End and a film, actually, mm -hmm. called A Girl in My Suit. There's a girl in my suit. There's absolutely. a girl in my suit. We're, you know, this is a, you know, I'm sure that most people watching will know these titles, but, you know, this is a part of the kind of general culture that's sort of gradually disappearing, isn't it? I mean, before we talk about that, I mean, in this case, you're, you're preserving, I mean, it was your father's work originally, wasn't it, writing this, I suppose? But you, aren't you sort of preserving as it's, well? Like Peter, this has become my life mission. It's really weird. And this was originally written as a radio play right. in 1987. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I would have been, you know, 18 years old or something. And it won the Radio uh, Drama of the Year Award. And it got more letters from listeners than any other drama in the history of really? Radio 4 at the time. Uh. And then it got option to be a film. And it spent the next 20 years in what's called development hell. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, it just never... Ken Loach optioned it at one point, and it just never quite happened. And then Dad's friend, a guy called Jeremy James Taylor, who he golfing friend, who'd founded the National Youth Music Theatre, had been constantly saying, you should turn this into a stage musical. Right. And Dad had been going, no, 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 it's going to be... Um, it's going to be a, uh, a film. Ken Loach is going to direct it, blah, blah, blah. And then, anyway, one time they were playing golf in the West Country, and the proprietor of the local theatre was in the golf clubhouse afterwards. And he said, have you two got a project for me? And Dad and Jeremy looked at each other, and they said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. And they got another golfing friend of theirs, a man called Gordon Clyde, to write the music. And they put this musical on in the Theatre Royal Barnstaple. Right. In 2004. And I went to see it. And, you know, I, I grew up with the theatre. I've had it shoved down my throat since an early age. And most of the time, I think it's disappeared up its backside. There are exceptions. But I went to see this and I just fell in love. And I remember saying to Dad, I've never seen any show ever that's had that effect on a room. And the yeah. only problem was it was in 
like one of the most remote parts of the country yes. there is, basketball. Yes. So, so hardly anyone saw it and it had a four day run. So it became my kind of mission to somehow make the money mm. to put this thing on. And then that's why I ended up becoming a financial writer because I was trying to figure <laughs> out how to earn enough money. We needed five million quid to take it into the West End. Yes. Anyway, um, and it, 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 it was revived again. And then, they, then the man who wrote the music, Gordon Clyde, died. And so only half the music was complete. And there was a load of things that needed happening. And then I, I actually kind of think it's almost my mission, but it's also there's some destiny the, 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 the Norns or whoever it is, the puppeteers yeah, in the sky yeah. playing games with me. But so, you know, my Brexit song that yes, I wrote, 17 yes. million. 17 million F-offs. Is a, yeah. we, so we haven't, people get very concerned about us using bad language on. We haven't sworn. So. We haven't sworn. And um, the, so I'm, I've always been good at writing lyrics, but I'm not a good musician at all. And I used to have these ukulele lessons with this man, this very gentleman who was wore tweed jackets yeah, doing yeah, ukulele yeah, lessons. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I just knew, and he never talked about politics or anything like that, and I just knew that he was a Brexiteer and was sort of had a similar uh, view of the world that yeah, you yeah. and I share. And so gradually I said, I've, I've got this idea for this, this song, and he kind of helped me write this song. And then I said to him, I've got this idea of this song and, and he had he actually wrote the music and put it to the folk song Uncle Tom Cobbley and all the rest of it. And so we just forged this relationship where he would write the music and I would write the words. And then I said to him, look, I've got this project of my dad's and half the music's complete, but the other half isn't complete. Um, would you be interested in helping me out? And he went, oh, well, as a matter of fact, my father was evacuated from East London to Cornwall as well. Really? And so we had these sheds. So he yeah. came and wrote half the songs with me. Mm. And I just knew after Dad died in 2020, if I didn't do it, nobody else would. Mm. And I didn't have the means to turn it into a film. I didn't have the means to turn it into a stage show. But I did have the means to turn it into this podcast. Mm. And so I did it to make sure that it exists. Yes, yes. Because otherwise it's just going to be a script and a CD and it will... Disappear, disappear in the vortex of yeah, history. Exactly. I mean, you said, you know, we think of the great, the, the, so much of our culture and history is just being lost. And, and I just wanted to preserve this because it, you know, I, I genuinely believe that if it were to be, there were to be a West End show of it or a film made of it or even a, a series made of it, it could be as big as Oliver or The Sound of Music or one of those great musicals with kids. It's that special. I was thinking of Oliver. I was thinking Lionel Bart was sort yeah. of going through my mind as it's, well. It's, this is Oliver, but for Vaki's kids. Yes, yes. I, I think it's... Um, yes, there's, there's a recurring theme to great stories with kids, by the way. Yes. And it's, you, you see it with The Sound of Music, uh, Oliver, um, Matilda, uh, um, Annie, uh, even Harry Potter. It's orphaned kids. Yes kids somehow separated from their parents or losing a parent or something. Mm. It's a really bizarre common theme and this has that. But I think the wider thing as well with um, evacuees, these stories um, are increasingly not known by people um, because they're not highlighted no. so much. I mean, I'm not saying there's any kind of insidious reason why necessarily, and maybe sometimes it is just the passage of time, but 
the fact is, is that they, they're not highlighted so much. Um, and when they are, they um, have to be seen through a certain prism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, when I think, I mean, it's, it, it's sort of rather shameful. When, it, when I think my own parents, you know, were both evacuated, as I said, um, both from Peckham, they lived um, in streets, uh, you know, like uh, parallel streets. As people did in those days, you know, they got married. Mm -hmm. you know. But they were, they were both, um, I think before they knew each other, obviously, they were both evacuated. To where? Uh, well, um, to a number of different places, you see. So the chronology now will never be known. Okay. Because the thing is that when you're younger, I don't know whether you were like this with your father, but you're only so interested in them. Mm. And they, actually, when I think about it, they used to be remarkably reticent about it. They didn't kind of overload, but it was there all the time. Their experiences during the war were there all the time. Mm -hmm. Nothing was going to equal that in their lives, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they were fighting or whether they were at home. But I do know that my father had a miserable time. My mother um, was with her, with her mother. But you see that she was evacuated a number of times. Could that have happened? I suppose it well, she, I know they must they have gone went... backwards and forwards because they were a direct hit. I know that. But they were a direct hit. The story was this, I remember. Sorry if I may just... It's all right. They, they, they were um, in Peckham... And it was a daytime raid, I think, which was unusual. Mm -hmm. And the bomb fell in the garden, but it blasted the house, of course, and everything. And they were underneath rubble, and they were pulled out like people were. God. Can you imagine? Uh, yes, and, and then um, my, this was a heartbreaking thing. My, my grandmother, um, my grandmother was um, so badly lacerated, her you know, blood and everything, that when they were going in the ambulance, Apparently, you know, my mum was saying uh, she didn't recognise her own mother. You know, she was called, where's mummy? Where's mummy? She was sitting right there, you know, um, because uh, but she was badly mm. injured. It left her, my grandmother, with an abiding hatred <laughs> of the Germans um, uh, throughout her whole entire life. Um, but um, one little detail was that my mum managed to get, you know, she had a favourite doll, which was a, a boy doll called Peter. And uh, anyway... After that, they were evacuated, and it was Wales. And one of the reasons that her face healed up was that she used to bathe it in this rainwater that used to come in a tub, you know, gather in a tub outside this cottage where they were evacuated. So in the valleys or something, just Must have very been. lovely work. But the yeah. thing is, I won't know any... That's what... I remember yeah. those things so clearly, but I won't know the... You know, maybe they wouldn't now either, but the dates, etc. I live in Broccoli. Oh, right. uh, just up the road from Peckham. And one of the stories I've heard living in Broccoli, and I would love to know if it's true, and maybe one of your viewers will know this, but one of the stories that does the rounds is that they sacrificed South East London. I mean, obviously, East London and South East London is going to get bombed first because yes. it's closer. Yep. But they sacrificed South East London to save Central London. And they were able to confuse the German planes, so they thought they were bombing central London when they were actually bombing south-east London. Really? And it was one of those hard choices that were made. I've and that's, never heard that before. Yeah, I don't know. I, as I say, I'm not sure if it's true, but it's a, does the, that's a story that does the rounds in Broccoli. But you see, for example, if you compare, I don't know, Broccoli or, or Lewisham or one of those areas, Camberwell, S Stockwell, you compare those places to, like, Notting Hill and... 
you know, West London, yes. and they took much bigger hits, and that's why, yes. and all the council houses were built uh, everywhere that, that uh, houses were built, bombed, council houses sprung up in their place. And of course, that might be one of the reasons why, uh, like, North West London was relatively, relatively untouched. I mean, it wasn't untouched, but, you know, comparatively speaking. Yeah, further to go, higher risk. Yes. You've got to get the whole way across London without being shot down. Yeah. You know. It's fascinating. I mean, look, you know, what he's brought forth, uh, obviously, in, in me. I mean, we were discussing a bit before we started filming this. Uh, you know, I was sort of talking about going back into one of those kind of YouTube vortexes you can go into and into all these people. Your, the fact that your father um, wrote, there's a girl in my soup. Um, you know, I was sort of thinking, these people, their names, and it's noticed about your father, at all. They're, they're sort of going more into the mists, aren't mm -hmm. they, of history? And, and I just wonder, is it is this a normal thing? Or do you think that things move quicker now? Do you think people have forgotten quicker? I think things do move very quickly. And there's only so much information that the human brain can carry. But, you know, Dad said he learned his craft in the repertory theatres. Mm. In the but 1950s, he, was an actor too, wasn't he was started out as an actor, mm. and he spent ten years, a decade, doing rep, rep, weekly rep. So they would be they'd be doing one play and rehearsing another, and they they worked and worked and worked. But he just spent ten years standing on a stage, doing play after play after play, and so he just learnt how you know one week it would be an Agatha Christie, the next week it would be yeah. Shakespeare, the next week it would be something else. But he just learnt how the forms work, he learnt how mm. the theatre works, how to hold himself on stage. He just learnt the craft of theatre. Mm. Mm. And we don't have that now. No, no, no. And you think of the great, you know, there are lots of great impresario actors that we've heard of, you know, Henry Irving and whoever else, Garrick. But, you know, they were the great farceurs, as you say, Brian Ricks, people like that. Mm. You know, some people, maybe some of the stuff that he did was a little bit on the cheap side. You know, maybe it wasn't that highbrow, Ray Cooney as well, but they knew what they were doing. They were all great craftsmen. And, you know, what theatre do we have now? We've got the subsidised stuff, the National Theatre and mm. so on, which has long since disappeared up its backside and is just doing woke-tastic stuff. And then you've got the jukebox musicals, and then you've got the sort of, um, by the jukebox musicals, I mean like the ABBA musical yeah, and so on. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got the, the revive, you know, the Lion King and all the big budget Disney musicals and so on and the Cameron Mackintosh stuff. And, but theatre itself, it's all but gone. And it was one of our great exports, one of our great products. Yes, and, yes. And you wonder if it's still there, the energy's still there latent, but... You know, I, I read about, I was listening to a, a <coughs> story about martial arts and the end of the samurai in Japan and how the, the, the old samurai masters, with the end of the samurai, they desperately wanted to preserve their fighting techniques and they were worried they'd all get yeah. lost. And that's kind of how judo was born. They all went and met and talked to this guy and that's kind of how judo was born. But you, you just wonder how much craft has been lost. Yes. I mean, how much wisdom. Yes. Was it natural, therefore, that you would kind of go into the business as well, like, like your father had? Yeah, yeah, but I never, like I trained as an actor, but I never had much success. And I, I, I mean, you know, I worked, which is more than many people can say, but I never, I didn't like auditions 
Mm. I didn't like the process of going and standing before somebody oh, and God, having them make a decision about you when I didn't have a great deal of respect for them. Yes. And that's why I always preferred stand-up, because you're much more in control. You still do. You're going on tour, aren't you, quite I soon? I am. I'm doing a tour of my, my unacceptable songs in the spring, yeah. Oh, right. OK, so that's like a comedy with music, is it? Yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. Comedy songs. I'll, I'll be doing my 17 million... Oh, OK. Can't say the word on the show. <laughs> Um, I know that's a revolutionary approach to podcasts because people usually can swear. It's, 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 it's one of those things we sort of, you know, we're, we're lumbered with it now. Um, it's good. Do you think? We swear way too much. Like, yes. The guy who I write the songs with won't play on stage with me because he says I swear too much. Oh. And so I've actually tried to cut out the swearing and it's fair <laughs> enough. He's, he's absolutely right. And it's, I think you swear. I mean, there is very witty swearing. Oh, yes. But, but also entirely. it is a compensation for lack of expression. Yeah. I mean, what about your own kids and Dominic? I mean, do you, uh, do they show any signs of being creative in this way? I mean, uh, or performing in, or writing? Or? Well, I have four, and the eldest is not creative in that way. He's, he's just, he did economics at university, and he's now got a job in recruitment. Um, the next eldest, the next one is extremely creative, but more design, fashion, food, that kind of thing. She won't be a performer. The next one is a brilliant musician. She's oh, the best. Yeah. She's 19. She's reading music at Cambridge. Yeah. And she's the best female clarinetist in the country under the age of whatever. Really? I mean, you know, she won. Oh. She was in the BBC um, New Musician of the Year Award and stuff like that. She is super. Oh, fantastic. Super. And she's also got grade eight violin, grade eight um, uh, uh, piano. You know, she's just great. What's her name? What should we... Lola Frisbee-Williams. Oh, okay. And then my youngest, Ferdy is um, the funniest of the four and could be the next great comedian, but I don't think he wants to be. <laughs> he's only 17, so he's young, but he's got funny bones and he's got an instinct for comedy. You do, uh, you compare Comedy Unleashed, mm -hmm. don't you? Which when is they have me, yeah. Yeah, which is quite a, a, a well, uh, increasingly well-known uh, comedy night, isn't it? Is it still weekly, I think? Is I it think it's weekly? monthly, once a <clears> month. Um, and then, but um, it's tough. For comedians out there now, isn't it? Um, yes and no. It's a saturated market, so it's difficult to earn a living and stand out. It's difficult to earn a living on the live circuit unless you're a name. If and you're also unless your you're own woke, show. presumably. Sorry? Unless you're woke. Well... Or do you think that's overplayed now? No, it isn't. I mean, they're the, the, most of the guys who you see on... In, on a lot of Channel 4 and BBC stuff have a certain worldview. There are some guys, you know, the likes of Michael McIntyre and Mickey Flanagan and people who just keep the politics themselves. Yes, yes. And, and you know, they've done absolutely fine. But it, it's a difficult industry, but it always was a difficult industry. And, but the, the, the carrot of fame and glory and whatever is such that many people you know, early in their careers, there's, there are no guarantees, but the, 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 the carrot of fame and wealth and all that is such that many people take the risk and give it a go, but there's only so much space on the top table. Yes. <laughs> well, look, Dominic, it's been lovely to, I mean, this has been quite unusual for us doing this on the show, actually, talking about a, 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 a purely creative production like this. I think it will really resonate. Could, uh, again, could I just... Just yeah. add a couple of things about the show very yeah, quickly. Yeah, please. It's just <clears throat> like, as well as being an emotional story, it's also very educative because you get the whole 
of the story of yep. World War II. Mm -hmm. And I'll just tell you about a couple of incidents in the show, for example, to give you an example. One is there was an incident where Plymouth got very badly bombed and Dad was in Plymouth on a shopping trip when it happened. Oh, right. And they, they took shelter in a, in a, in a subway. Um, and you get the whole story of that and then the village's reaction to Plymouth. And then um, prior to D-Day, all the American soldiers came over and were billeted in various villages mm. around the country. And the regiment of soldiers that were billeted in this village, and we tell the story in the show, was a regiment from Louisiana. And it was one of the few black regiments yeah. Yeah. Uh, in World War II. And, and in fact, one of the local girls became pregnant by one of them, <laughs> as, many, as many people did. But, and I just thought, I've, and, and of course, in this little village in Cornwall, no one had ever seen a, you know, Englishmen were foreigners, yes. Americans were from Mars, but black yes. Americans, I mean, no, you know, from yeah. a different, yeah. I don't know, solar system almost. But, you know, you've got the whole story of that in there and of course from a musical point of view they bring all their music with them and it's great and I said to dad you made that up didn't you they they weren't and dad was no no I had a tap dancing lesson on a sheet of plywood yeah. outside the barracks from a man from New Orleans really? and he, t he tells and, and I was going no but come on you you made it up and then I went to New Orleans a couple of years ago and I went to the um, they've got a great military museum there and so I did some research and there was, that regiment was, there were all sorts of regiments were billeted there, but there was this black, um, the Louisiana 14th or something they were called. Good I don't Lord, even remember. Really. But anyway, so they were billeted and you get the whole of that story. And then Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack, their son, their one son, was killed fighting in Sicily. Oh. And at the end of the story, when he dies, dad and his brother said, okay, one of us will go home, back to mum and dad, and the other one of us is gonna stay here and become your son. And that's really? fair. Good Lord. And they wrote this letter home and they, they were gonna do this. But in the end, Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack took in the girl who had become pregnant by one of the soldiers to save her from going to one of those homes for unmarried mothers. Yeah. They were the most incredible couple giving and and yeah. you know they weren't given any money or anything they just took her in they were given money to take in the vackies but not not to take this girl in and they were just the most selfless couple and then um a few years ago we they planted a tree in doubles in memory of dad and we went down there and i met this old lady who had uh um who had been married to one of the local boys who had lived in the same cottages as dad and had played with dad. And she said that, yes, it was true. There was a big scandal because this girl had become pregnant by a black American soldier mm. and she, they had this mixed race kid, but it was true. And they brought him up. So it was true. Good Lord. Amazing. Is any of that referred to in, in it, this? It's all in the, oh, it's it's all in, in the, the whole story's there. So again, so people should go to... Kisses on a postcard. Kissesonapostcard.com. Dot com. And uh, it's either there free or on a CD if you prefer. Thank you very, very much, Dominic. For Peter, that. thank, thank you, you so for much. showing it very much. It was fascinating. Um, well, there you are. Um, some nice, well, not just nostalgia, actually. That's rather to cheapen it, I think. Um, but I certainly found that um, absolutely fascinating and moving. See you next week, anyway. Thank you. Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel, and you believe in our mission, 
May I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you. Thank you.